Today I'm in London at Mishkondorea, uh, which is a British law firm and forms part of the silver circle of the leading UK law firms. And I'm specifically with Elliot Moss, who's a partner and the chief brand officer with overall responsibility for brand marketing, communications, client development, new business, international strategy and social impact. He also works with clients developing both business and brand strategies. So, welcome, Elliot. Thank you. <laughs> lovely to meet you. So, how much of that was right and how much of it was correct? Well, I mean, it's what, I, it's what we say. It's what I say on the, on the bio. But it's um, like everything, Sam. You know, it says something, but it doesn't say what you really do. But then, right. if you go into too much detail, you, you'd all fall asleep. <laughs> yes, it's, it's accurate because I wrote it. It's the great thing about my job. I get to write whatever I want to write, and we, we kind of make it up as we go along. It's true. Articulated in the way I wanted to articulate. <laughs> All right, okay, that's good. That's good. I love that. And um, so, for the people that don't know, what is the Silver Circle of law firms? What does that mean? So there are many, many hundreds of law firms in the UK and many, many thousands of solicitors, which are distinct from barristers who are called chambers and they usually appear in court, although some solicitors confusingly can appear in court as well. <laughs> but the solicitors break into what's called the magic circle, which is the top. I don't know, eight to 10 firms. Okay. The Silver Circle, which are premium London-based but have an international clientele, are independent, so may not have hundreds of offices but just yeah. have a few, and they kind of are um, doing a certain type of work, which is usually in high-profile work. It's usually high-stakes work, so yeah. it's like when there's serious stuff going on. But the nature of the clientele is distinct from the, the high street. Right. The high street solicitors do an excellent and important job. We don't play in that market because okay. we play to kind of people, wealthy people, big businesses, um, people that have issues that need, re- need resolving by the kind of law firm that we are. So the, okay. the silver circle is quite small. The magic circle are enormous. They're like uh, yeah. firms called Clifford Chance or Linklaters, uh, and right. they have okay. huge revenue. Our revenue is around 200, 220 million pounds. Yeah. It will be. And the silver circle, the magic circle is sort of in the billions. And then high streets can be whatever. And we have 600 lawyers here. So it's also a size thing. Yeah. But it's, it, it, it sits at the, it's sort of the next step down from what's called the magic circle. That's right. why it's called the silver circle. Okay, amazing. So important work for clients who want to have a very, very good, and a very high standard of lawyering, delivering solutions for them. Okay, perfect. Thank you for that. What does it mean to be a partner of a law firm in terms of what does the day-to-day look like? Because I know a lot of my listeners have like what suits and everyone assumes that you're like a Harvey Specter. So tell us, is it like that? Is it anything well, like that at all? I, I mean, there's a film, I forget the name of it, it's got George Clooney in it. And so for me, as a non-lawyer, there's a handful of us who are non-lawyer partners in a business. Okay. Um, I wish it was George Clooney, I forget the name, but he's basically, he mops up problems. Oh, okay. And he sort of works in the shadows um, and does all sorts of strange things. My day can start, it starts very early in the morning when I turn on my, my phone is turned on, when I check the news, Mishkondare is often either in the news or its clients are in the news. So the first thing I do is look at the headlines and my emails, and that's probably when I wake up at six, give or take. And then it is a combination of handling, even today, I was at my desk by 8.30, and I thought I had a bunch of preps before a 9.30 meeting, and then suddenly someone walks in who was coming from South Africa, who was in, then my chair walks in, then I get a call from a potential client. At the same time, I'm mopping up stuff from a dinner I had last week with the CEO of our, one of our new businesses that we've just gone into a combination with. I'm checking emails. There's suddenly hundreds of emails that are coming through that I wasn't expecting. I'm judging a 
Inspirational Women in Law Awards in the next week. So I've got Amazing. 40 things to review there in my in- inbox. I'm thinking about the strategy for a new part of our business. That was there this morning. I'm involved in something called Legal UK, which is all about it's an industry initiative trying to p- promote English law internationally because English law actually is a massive international asset for us, massive yeah. international export and has been for over for many, many years, hundreds of years. And so we've just launched a, a campaign to drive that and we're at the beginning of that because it's going to be an international campaign all those things and probably 10 others have been in my head since i since this morning so the average day there is no such thing there will be meetings like this one with you and probably another four or five today and on top of that a whole bunch of trying to think trying to um manage client client stuff as it comes and then just the random things that happen so the, the overall thing is my job is to think about the organization, think about how we deliver our, our brand, yeah. what the marketing looks like, making sure the team is the right team. There was something I, I looked at today with regard to hiring in Singapore, where I'm just yeah. confirming something there, preparing for a board meeting next week where I'm looking at a couple of things that we, I want to share. I've got to look at the papers with those people that delivered them. It's an ongoing, organic, what's the structure like of this business? What role does the, the brand play in it? What does brand mean? And how do we essentially grow our business? But it yeah. can mean all sorts of stuff. And the, the aim is always within the minutiae of the detail is to keep really focused about the shape of the business yeah. and where you're trying to go. And that's really hard. Excellent. You're the chief brand officer here. Is that something that you've always, I guess, had experience to do? Or was that a new type of position that Mishcon identified was a need and brought you in to fulfill? That's a good question. My background after the university was in advertising. I started off as a graduate trainee in a business called Leo Burnett, which is one of the big old ad agencies. Yeah. So my first 16 years of my life, of career, was working in advertising. So brand is obviously a big part of advertising. Right. My clients were Potter & Gamble and Kellogg's and Timberland and right. Scottish Widows and all sorts. I lived in Asia for a couple of years. I lived okay. in Latin America for a couple of years. So I have a lot of experience in that. Okay. And I ran a business after that specializing in advertising. So Mishkondorea 20 years ago had a famous name, but not a particularly famous brand. And there's a difference between name recognition and understanding what a brand does. Right. Nike is a strong brand, Adidas is a strong brand, Apple's a strong brand, Spotify's a strong brand. But there are other, in the legal world, there are many strong brands. There are strong okay. names, if you know what you're looking for. So my background is in brand and advertising. Many, many years ago, our chief executive chair recognized that we needed to create a brand that has substance, that has programs, that has a whole bunch of stuff going on that's much more sustainable. And so I worked with Mishkondorea outside, yeah. uh, helping with their brand positioning, and then they asked me to come and join. And wow. that's how that happens. So I've been with Mishkondorea now 12 years. Oh, amazing. It's very interesting that you said there's a difference between having a, a strong name and a strong brand. Can you elaborate a bit more on what like the key difference is? Is it around that, you know, you just think of Spotify, you know, may not necessarily know what they do, but you know the name. Is, is that part of the difference or something else? Yeah, I mean, I think it's about, there's a lot of competition in every area of business, whether it's law, whether it's streaming music, whether it's bank, whether it's an app, or banking, whether it's water whether it's technology in any form, brands for, for fashion, I'm looking at a, my little mulberry <laughs> card holder. Um, Good brand, by the way. It's That's a lovely awesome. brand. It's a lovely <laughs> brand. The difference between, in the legal world, having name recognition and having a brand is that the first one just says, 
someone may have heard of you because of some of the work that you did. Okay. And they've heard your name fleetingly and gone, yeah, I know what they're about, maybe. But you, in reality, you only know them in relation to the piece of work they did. Okay. Our name recognition was driven by the fact that Michelle Andre looked after Princess Diana and her divorce. Right, okay. So everyone went, that's what they do. But the problem with name recognition is it doesn't tell the whole story. Okay. So if you just passively let your name go into the ether, people will decide what they want to decide about what you do. The purpose of creating a brand is to actually confer meaning, to create meaning in what the, you want the brand to stand for. What are its values? Okay. How does it come, how does it present itself if it was, a, if it was in a meeting? so to speak, what would it say? What does it, what does it stand for? Yeah. What is its purpose? All those things you create a brand strategy about uh, for, and then you spend money, whether it's in digital, whether it's offline, yeah. whether it's hosting events, whether it's doing all those things, whether it's having comments about what's going on in the news that aren't your own cases. You do all those things right. you do at scale, yeah. and people start to understand what you do. So obviously Nike versus Adidas, some people will know the difference, but that's a very developed category with with a clear understanding that the name isn't good enough. Right. If you take, is it Yeezys? Yeezys are the, yes, the Adidas. Yes, Yeezys, Yeezys, yeah, right. yeah. So I'm obviously too old to know what Yeezys <laughs> Living through my children, I would not wear Yeezys because I'm 50. <laughs> but I look at those and I understand that the brand is driven by the design. Yeah. They're pretty chunky, they're pretty cool, yeah. they're not Adidas, they're obviously something else, they're pretty expensive. Mm. They've And they will probably do collabs with people, they will probably be an Insta brand rather than a Twitter brand. They will right. probably be in certain right. stores, not in others. They will look at how what, how they manage their supply and demand. They will right. do drops. They will do all sorts of stuff that says this is the kind of brand that we are. And to create a brand means you have to have some real substance underneath it and you need to invest in it. Having a name in the legal world is not difficult if you're doing big cases, but you will only ever get to a very flat, two-dimensional understanding of what the name means, whereas a brand, it means actually that the lawyers aren't just the brand. The brand has a voice of its own. Okay. If you don't invest in that name, everything that people think is just based on their experience of the individual. Okay. I've got 600 lawyers, yeah. so I need to try and give some coherence and some understanding at the top level, whether they're not in the room, or whether they are in the room, about what Mishkondorea is about. Okay. And that's really why you invest in brand. And, it, and people will know the value of a brand on a balance sheet is sometimes up to 20% of the total value of that brand. So I'll give wow. you an example. Apple may sell £1 trillion worth of sales, but its yeah. brand value, its value on the stock exchange, its value generally, will be much more than that. And what people call brand is a kind of an intangible asset. Okay. versus tangible asset sales. It's yeah. exactly the same for a law firm. My tangible sales are X, but I've just added on my brand value, it's going to go to Y. And it's not simply a multiple of profit, it's something yeah. else. And that's when you, you know you've got something in your, uh, you know you've created value in the brand. Oh, that's amazing insight. Thank you for that, actually. Um, really, really helpful. Um, and so what I want to do is talk a little bit about your background. So... Were you born in the UK? Um, were you, was it immigration, immigration? Like, how did you get here? And then we can talk about your journey to where you are today. So I'm, I was born in the UK um, okay. to a Jewish family. I'm Jewish. My dad is, you can't see this because you're listening, but I'm pretty dark. <laughs> so where are you from then? And I get, um, I get, I could be Indian, I could be Pakistani, I could be Greek. Um, if you're Jewish, you know that I'm probably Jewish because I'm a boring guy from Northwest London. Um, I, people don't know where I'm from. 
which is fine by me. And even today, as a 50-year-old, I get asked in a, in a prep by a, a lovely woman with a hijab saying, where are you from? Thinking I could be from the same country. And I'm cool with that. I'm <laughs> down with that. I don't mind at all. Born in the UK, born to third generation family, second, third, can't remember, maybe third. On my dad's side, Russian, Polish. On my mum's side, much longer in the UK, kind of German, Dutch, both both sides Jewish. Okay. So born, born, born in Paddington, St Mary's Hospital. Oh, okay, yeah. As it happens, not very far from here in Hoban. And brought up in North West London. And I was the first mosque to go to university in, wow. my, in my family. But my mum's side, they, they had gone many years before. Yeah. But on my dad's side, it was the, we were the first generation to go to uni. Okay. And, you know, in uni, is that where you kind of figured out, this is what I want to do? Or, or did it kind of, fall, did you fall into it? <laughs> well, I was, gonna, I was really interested in about 14, 15, being a lawyer, actually. Okay. And here I am in a law firm, I'm not a lawyer. Yeah. I saw a film called Cry Freedom, which was about apartheid. Um, you're, you're too young. I'll take that as a compliment. It's a compliment. <laughs> and Cry Freedom was all about South African apartheid, okay. about Mandela and stuff. And I got really angry and upset that this was the way the world was. And I joined Amnesty International the next day, pretty wow. much as a 14 or 15 year old. And from then on, I wanted to be a lawyer. And then I did actually want to do law at university. It didn't work out like that, yeah. um, which was a good lesson in how to interview and also working hard for A-levels rather than DJing, which I did um, stupidly. But I ended up doing politics and parliamentary studies okay. at Leeds University with Spanish, actually. And that's because I was really, I love politics. Okay. So I did my A-levels in something called an S-level, a special paper, which was a Cambridge right. University paper. And then that helped me get into Leeds. Because at the end of the A-level thing, I hadn't done as well as I should have done and had to go looking around. This was way back in 1989. Okay. That not, that, not that long ago. And so, yeah, did I, I, I was really, I loved politics. And I was yeah. interested in studying. And while I was at uni, I wasn't sure what I wanted to do. It was either going to be um, the music industry, mm-hmm. which I was really interested in, journalism. And then my then-girlfriend was looking at advertising. Mm-hmm. And I thought, well, I would give that a go. Got rejected from 19 places, 18 places, got two interviews at the big agencies, yeah. got through one of those interviews and got offered a job. So I was jamming. And that was in then, there was yeah. another recession, 1992, got offered the job and started in 1993 and then graduated in 93 and went straight into a graduate trainee role in okay. one of the biggest agencies in the world. Oh, and started, yeah, I was very lucky. So I got trained really well. Yeah. Um, and that business was a business I stayed with for 12 years. That's incredible. So you went, you kind of stumbled into the advertising side, yeah. But then you've made a, obviously a great career out of it. Was there a light bulb moment for you, or were you kind of just enjoying yourself or following a passion? Made you stay in advertising? I really, it was advertising is quite a varied thing. Communications, you need to understand about business, understand about ideas, understand about how to communicate with people, understand about popular culture and how that intersects, understand about politics and economics. So for me, actually, it was many, many things that came together that made me okay. I had a pretty good eye for whether the idea was a strong, medium or weak one. And my clients at the beginning were Kellogg's and Kraft. And I had brands like Cocoa Pops was one of my first brands. And Honey Nut Loops, I think they're still around. Yeah, There was another one which is not around anymore. So the story is Banana Bubbles. Banana Bubbles died, as was quite right, because it was a a cereal that thought it was a milkshake. It was destined to fail. And it did. But no, it it was a brilliant... The advertising world is fantastic if you're interested in lots of stuff and communication, but you're not necessarily you're not wanting to be an accountant or you don't okay. want to be a lawyer or you're but you're interested in creativity 
So it's kind of commercial creativity. And that's actually for someone like me who's got lots of interests and lots of my brain works in a certain way. That was the perfect combination. And then so when you were on your journey and you started to get into middle management, senior management, assuming you did that before um, running your own business, how did you position yourself for promotion? What were the things you thought about? What did you do to get there? I've worked out quite early on. I used to caddy in a golf club when I was about 13. Oh, okay. Right, so one of my first jobs and then I DJed when I was in my teens. Well, it sounds like crazy, not crazy thing, but I had a mobile disco. Oh, right, it may okay. sound like a small thing, but it was turning over £10,000 a year when I was 17. Wow. So it was a real thing and very yeah. high margins. And I had to do, what do you call it, tax returns and stuff. I started as the junior with one of my best friends and then bought, bought the business from him. The reason I mention that is because I figured out quite early on that if I didn't work really hard, I wouldn't do that well. Okay. So part one of positioning myself for promotion and more money was I tried to work harder than anybody else. Okay. So from day one of my graduate training program, I worked really hard, I socialised really hard, I got to know everybody, and I just threw myself in. Okay. When it came to and my starting salary in, 19, in 1993 was £13,750, which was a hell of a lot of money when you haven't, you know, I was living with my parents for that year, yeah. commuting from the end of the, the Jubilee line, going into town, <laughs> and I just kind of sussed out that I had to work hard, and I knew if I didn't work hard, I wouldn't do as well. Not just because it wouldn't look good, but because I wouldn't get the results. Because I'm, yeah. I might just be an A student if I if I really came it. Yeah. So when I came to one of my first pay reviews, I think they were set. I sort of called it the communist regime. They were set that I got to fifteen thousand pounds after three months, sixteen and a half thousand, whatever it was after, so on and so on and so forth. Right. And I think quite early on, I went in and I said, I think you're paying me the same as the other three, but why? That doesn't make any sense to me. They're lovely, but I feel like you're getting more value from me. I mean, I was, I was quite punchy. Yeah. So I sort of, I, I really believed that what I was doing was of value, even if I was rubbish. And I kind of got told quite a few times because <laughs> you learn as you go. Yeah. Um, and I, I was very hungry to understand, well, if I'm not ready for promotion, I was an executive wanting to become a manager, wanting to become a supervisor, wanting to become a director. If I wasn't ready for promotion, I, I asked directly, what do I need to do? And they told me, they said, well, you need to read a bit more. You need to be better at this. You need to lead the client like this. And I went away and I tried to do it. So I very early on was not scared to ask. Okay. So I was, and it's quite hard because now having been, you know, I've run teams and run a team of 50 people and I've run bigger teams than that. It's really hard with those, those, those ambitious young people. Yeah. But as long as they work really hard and they're clear, that junior level, you, you can be black and white about it. It gets much harder as you get more senior because yeah. it's, it's much greyer, less black and white about what's good and what's not. You know, it's, it's more nuanced. But that's what I did. So I was quite punchy, but I also was, I acknowledged when I wasn't ready. Yeah. And I think I wanted to be promoted to an account director or supervisor before I was ready. And they said, you're just not ready. And then I had a boss who was very happy to tell me I wasn't ready. And kind of put me down in a good way. Yeah. She was very tough on me because there were things I just didn't know. Yeah. And so sometimes you don't know what you don't know. Okay. And you don't even know what to, to ask. So you have to take that as well. But my general thing was uh, work hard, really hard, play hard, really hard, mm -hmm. learn, read. I, you know, before we were recording, you talked about going back to study. Yeah. I studied a lot because I felt marketing and advertising was a bit soft. I didn't, I'd, I'd studied politics and Spanish at uni. I hadn't studied marketing. Yeah. 
I went and read loads of marketing textbooks. I went and educated myself about business in general. That's what, and I still do that today. I still feel like I know nothing. So that constant, I don't know anything, what do I need to learn? That really helps position you as someone with, rather than just talking and saying I should be promoted, you actually have some substance to you. That's amazing because there are some sort of topics that you touched on there that really bring it together. I feel like part of that is self-awareness, part of that is confidence, yeah. you know, even being able to take um, criticism. Yeah, which as is hard as it is. Yeah. It's horrible, but it's... Yeah. And I remember the feeling when I was asked about something called price elasticity, which I did not have a clue about, and I thought yeah. I did, and my boss, my American boss at the time, months, years later, just said, you just thought you knew everything and you didn't, and I needed to show you that. And it was awful, but it was, I still remember it. Yeah. So I think, I think that was a big, big part of it, learning and pushing yourself. And what do you think, you know, when people, a lot, I know a lot of young people, when they get that type of feedback, it, it puts them down and they think, okay, I need to go another direction or I know a lot of people leave or give up. What made you keep going? Is there anything you can pin that to? It's a good question. I don't know. I think for me personally, it's just like I, I thought leaving wasn't, I never thought leaving was the answer. Actually, and I stayed with, with Leo Burnett for 12 years, did lots of different jobs, but I really, I was, all, I was at the same school for 11 years. I'm, you know, I'm not an institution, I'm, although I've been here for 12 years. <laughs> I, I think there's enough fun in the world, in your own world, that, well, okay, I'll just say it another way. There's enough fun and, and, and stimulation that if you're with the right group of people generally, you keep going. If you're okay. genuinely in the wrong place, get out. Okay. But nev- I've never blamed another person for anything that's gone wrong in my life. Not once. Uh-huh. So I take full responsibility for my own career. Uh-huh. If I want to learn, I'm not going to say, well, why didn't you teach me? I'm going to say, what do I need to learn? If there's a course to go on, I'll go on the course. If there's a book to read, I'll read the book. If yeah. there's some humble pie to take, I'll take the humble pie. Yeah. I've had one or two bad bosses, uh-huh. but I stood there like a fighter in the ring and I went for it. Not in an aggressive way, but I'm like, if someone comes after me unfairly, that's not a good idea. Yeah. I'm very tenacious. Yeah. And the harder you hit me, the harder I'll come back. Not that I don't mean physically. I've never had a <laughs> complete win. I'm a complete win. I may be a, a, big, a big unit from when I'm sitting down, but I've never, never, never done anything like, like that. But the, if there's an injustice, Samuel, I think that's the point. I don't like injustice, so I'll stay and fight. That's why I think what Ken is like, you think that? I don't think so. Okay. And I was enjoying it enough. It wasn't horrible, but there were days. There are days all the time when you go, "Oh, I don't know about this." Yeah, but it's so easy to cut and run, and I've just never been like that. You just dig deeper, and you always find that you'll learn more that way. Yeah. So that's why I didn't. You know, I've only worked. This is my third business that I've worked in since graduating. But boy, have I done a. I've got loads of side hustles always. Yeah. And b. I've done every day. It's like its own universe. Yeah. Take every day like that and grab it. And then if you've got a vision of your own development and a vision of where you're going to go, then you, you, and you mould it and you, you, you're fluid enough, then, then good things happen. People get very fixed. They take conflict very personally and they, they, they get stuck. You know, looking at the glass here. I get stuck, I can't go around the glass. All I can see is the glass and I can't go through it. Well, then you just go, oh, if I sit back and get a bit of perspective, well, how else can I move around it? So I'm much more interested in looking at around problems rather than running away to find another set of them. That's amazing. That's amazing. And would you say that, like, so my next question was going to be, like, what are your guiding principles for success? Is that one of them? Are you just talking about your character or what would you say they are? My guiding principles are work hard, work hard, work hard, work really hard. Like, that's, I don't think there's a, you know, 
I may not be the brightest person in the room, but I will possibly be one of the hardest. Not the hardest, because there are people that work harder as well. Mm. No joke. No, it's no coincidence the taxi driver who does 12 hours a day earns more than the taxi driver does six hours a day. There's Absolutely. a simple math to it. So yeah. try that. Create excitement with the people you're working with, whether they work for you or they work alongside you. Mm. Listen to them, have fun with them, be honest with them. Most people have got something to offer the world. You just have to listen in a bit. And sometimes people are dismissive. And by the way, I can be too, right? Yeah. It's not that I'm not. Yeah. But like when I lived in India for two years, I had an incredible team. And most of that team had never had never been asked the questions I asked them. They were basic questions like, what do you think? <laughs> but in yeah. a hierarchical world, and, and, and in Indian business is pretty hierarchical, it was when I worked there, and many companies are hierarchical, you, you're sort of, you're, the junior person is dismissed. That's changed dramatically. I think now yeah. junior people are like, oh, we're all nervous that they're going to go off for somewhere else. And we all say, what do you think? What do you think? Yeah. But I think that that being genuinely open to anyone in the room, if you're good enough, then you've got a good idea. I don't really care what you're called, what your title is or all that. So one of my principles is that. Don't accept the status quo. Mm -hmm. Be practical about how you get to the next step. Yeah. The idea is great, but the idea is 1% of the solution. But have the ideas. Yeah. And I think doing lots of stuff is kind of cool. That's been my mantra. Some other people are focused and all they do is one thing and they're incredible. I would get bored. <laughs> so doing lots of things for me has always worked because it's given me, it's like a Petri dish when you stick loads of stuff in it. it yeah. Things grow and they're more interesting. And you don't know what, you, you know, the unexpected is difficult sometimes, but it's kind of cool. Right, okay. But I don't know if any of that is, I, I don't know if I have a guiding set of principles apart from being open and trying to enjoy myself. No, do you know what? All of that does really help because you can pull your own principles out of that. It's very interesting that you said, you know, it's not just one thing for you. There's always like doing a few things yeah. um, and great things come out of that because I'm very similar. And my teachers and my dad are always like, no, just focus on the one, focus on the one. But it I just got so bored. It yeah, it just didn't work for me. It didn't work for me. Like <laughs> yeah. you know, I was always the jack of all trades. Yeah. I couldn't help it. But that jack of all trades means that then you become sort of the, the specialist generalist. Okay. And, in, and management is often about being a generalist, like I'm yeah. not going to be the best data person, I'm not going to be the best writer, I'm not going to be the best organiser, I'm not going to be the best at anything, but I can probably better at most of those things than any one individual who's a specialist. Mm -hmm. um, and it's the same for sport with me, I love loads of sports, and although I'm probably against anyone who's brilliant at that sport, I'm okay, that one person who's brilliant at that one sport doesn't play the other six, yeah. and I'll be better than them all the other ones, and that's something about better or worse, it just means I can pick up a racket kick a football, whatever it is, and, mm -hmm. and do running and lift weights and all other rubbish. Yeah. But that's all, it's just part of the variety. The variety keeps, for me, keeps it interesting and does my head in. Yeah. You know, it's, it's a double-edged <laughs> thing. Like, some days, today is a busy day. Yeah. Today is a busy day. I'm going, whoa, can I do it? And then you don't, you know, your head's all over the place. But that's, that's, that's part, part of the process. Of yeah. yeah, yeah. Okay, and the question that's um, a little bit aside from that is, when you are hiring management or hiring into senior levels to work for you, what do you look for? And I know that's a very broad question, but just top level, what is it you look for? I look for intelligence. Mm. I have to have the, the people that I hire have to be smart. I look for rigor, if I can suss that out. Mm. I look for hard work, someone who's going to apply themselves. Um, I look for creativity. People who can come up with ideas, which is one of the hardest things because it's sort of the unknown. Yeah. Ideally, someone who's organised, but not, you know, the, there's a spectrum of creativity in organisation. I don't know if it is on one 
<laughs> one axis, but often the most creative people are the least organised and the most organised and the least creative, not always. But if there was both, that's fab, I've always said that. And obviously people that are going to be nice to people, I can't have people in my team. You know, I can be short with people and I end up apologising, not too often anymore, but <laughs> a bit, you know, you, yeah. you, you, I don't want people who are going to make other people feel like crap. Okay. They've got to make people feel good. People who can bring out the best in people. Oh, it's quite a tall order. But different people in different roles need different things. Yeah. I need someone who's one of my strategic, is like head of my head of insights and research. That person needs to be super high level analytical, more so than someone who perhaps is coming into my head of events. That person has to have different skills. So it's sort yeah. of obvious, but they all have something in common, which is that they're responsive, decent to work with. I can't stand people that don't get back to you. Yeah. Or that say they're going to do something and they don't. Those are the things that just wind me up. It's not yeah. what it is. Right. Okay. I think I've got very high standards, but I'm I the balancing act of having high standards and wanting people to have those and then being nice to people is difficult when you're irritated and it's not working well. Okay. But but yeah, all those things in those people are what I look for. A bit of a spark, something that I wasn't expecting. Yeah. You know, just a real person, a person that's got their own life, a person that's kind of, you know, hopefully comfortable in their own skin. That's important to me as well. That's amazing. What advice would you give anybody that is looking to get more money for what they're doing today or go and get more money doing something else? I think they need to be really honest with themselves about what level they're delivering at. If there was a scale of 1 to 10 where 10 is excellent and more rubbish, they need to agree with themselves where they're at. And then they need to work out if they were a 7 out of 10, what does a 7 out of 10 deserve? Right depersonalize it become objective about your own career because you'll be better for it like manage your own career as if it's a thing manage yourself as if you're a different person yeah. and don't be don't lie to yourself like don't get irritated because some because fred or jane is paid a load more you've got to be honest are they delivering an eight or a nine and even though they're at the same level but let's assume that you are equal to those other people and you think you're being paid less then I think, again, be, go in and talk objectively about your performance. Never talk about your own situation. The minute someone says to me, it's really hard at home, you know, I've just had a, I've just had a new kid, or my rent's just gone up, or I'm like, I've switched off. Mm-hmm. If you want to come in and ask me for more money, then talk to me about your performance, the value of your performance in the business, right. what the business values other people who are doing a similar thing, even if it's different, how much they're paid, what the market pays. Be analytical about it. Don't be emotional. So if you want more money, don't be emotional. Don't come in begging. Don't come in kicking and screaming. Be really calm about it. You're doing a deal. Yeah. You're not buying a company or selling a company. You're selling yourself. And you're saying, Look, actually, I'm not worth £28,000. I'm worth thirty. And let me explain why. I've done my research, and I hate having this conversation if that's what you're saying. I never did like asking for money. It's not very nice. It's a bit weird. It's very British to worry. But you go, look, I, 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 I've been doing it at this level. I was asked in my last appraisal to do it that. I've done that. I've done that. I've done that. Um, I can't put you on the spot now because you probably need to go and talk to a couple of people or you need to have a think about it. So I would like to consider that and come back to me in a couple of weeks to your position. If, it, if, I'm, if you can't pay me more money right now, tell me why. If you don't think I'm, it's, I'm worth that... I'd love to hear why not and what I need to do. So just be very, make it easy for the person. Yeah. Make it easy. The, the, the other thing is, though, sometimes it will just come to you. I don't mean yeah. that all the time, but if you're really good, sometimes, you know, a great boss will turn around and say, you're underpaid by 20%. We know that, and here's what we're doing. 
not always. Yeah. I do have people that say I need to be I need I need to come in and sort of be punching a bit to get the money. And maybe that's the case because it's just loads of people asking for it. Yeah. But I think the calmer you can be, the more honest you can be with yourself, the more likely you are to get more money. Amazing. Thank you very much, Elliot. The final question, are there any books or podcasts aside from this one that you would advise the listeners to go and check out? Well, it depends what they're doing it for. So if you want to know about entrepreneurs and founders, go to Jazz Shapers, <laughs> Saturday morning, 9am Jazz <laughs> FM, available in Spotify and iTunes. That's one that you'll enjoy. Which is by Mishwanda Rose, business, but it's personal. Um, if you want stuff on, I mean, that is a good one for business in general because you hear about entrepreneurs and yeah. founders. You know, if we all were founders of our own lives, which we are, Mm. then how does a founder behave in a corporate business? That's in a way what you want. You want someone to be entrepreneurial and all that. So that's a good one. I suppose I would say that podcasts and stuff you listen to should be to fuel your own passions. Mm -hmm. If you have someone who's passionate at work about about their own life, that makes a major difference. You've got to be happy outside of outside of working hours. I'm not going to say the workspace because the workspace <laughs> could be at home. It can be yeah, anywhere. That's true. But make sure your brain is full of stuff and your life is full of stuff you love. Because then you will enjoy whatever it is that you're doing for work. So actually, it's not about learning about more worky stuff. Do that because you want to get better at your job. But to really enjoy your life and be your best self at work, find your passions and listen to that stuff and engage in that stuff. Amazing. Thank you very much, Elliot. All right. Thanks for joining, promoted and paid. It's pleasure. really nice to see you. Absolute pleasure.